once again to the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Alex. I'm Matt. I'm Crystal. I'm Vera. And I'm Sylvia. This week, we are turning to chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. Uh, But before uh, we open up Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone once again, uh, we want to acknowledge, A, it's been quite a while since we've been with you, dear friends. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's been holiday season, uh, a couple of months, but we are back together, back in action, and we're so glad that you're here with us. But that extended time away from the podcast means that our email inbox filled up quite nicely. So we've got a couple of things uh, that we'd like to read from dedicated listeners before we jump in. Yes, our first uh, letter is a note of clarification from Char Char. Uh, she noted that when discussing Godric's Hollow in the last episode, um, we described it like a regular town, but in cha- in book seven, it was clear that this was a community where, quote, notable homes to uh, knots of wizarding families who lived alongside tolerant and sometimes confunded muggles. Um, because there was a church and a war memorial that transformed into a statue dedicated to Harry's family, it was clear this was a community where muggles and wizards lived side by side. Um, Thank you very much for pointing this out, Trotra. We would love to have uh, notes of clarification. Whenever there's anything that we miss, we want to be as uh, detailed as we can, accurately represent Harry Potter and the Wizarding World on this podcast. <laughs> yes, and we did look up and confirm. Charchar is absolutely right. And according to the current canonical material, only Hogsmeade is an exclusively wizarding community. Right, and I have an email here from Sam who says, I have some questions your group could consider. There will surely be more because he's only three episodes in. Um, His first question is, what is it with Rowling's tendency to have characters not only typed by their names meaning and sound, but also by their body types? Is this a British lit thing? Uh, Dickens did it well, but so many of Rowling's people have body shapes or features that give insight into their character. Uh, he suggests that Mad-Eye Moody is maybe the most obvious example. So what do you all think? Well, first, would somebody maybe expound on what you think Sam is getting at about Mad-Eye Moody's body corresponding with his character? So I think his body has been scarred by his vocation, just what he does for a living. And with that, he's also gotten scarred, um, his body physically, but also he's tough. He's someone that, you know, he's a, a really famous R that people know him by name and by what he looks like as someone who's caught a lot of dark wizards. Yeah. And uh, the Moody is, it's, it's one of those examples of, of Rowling really playing into character well because he is such a paranoid kind of sporadically crazy character that Moody is a perfect word for, for what he is. And then you get that alliteration. It's it's a very well done name. Yeah. Another obvious character would be Voldemort, uh, mm-hmm. especially later on when he comes back to his body in Book Four. He's described with very serpentine features, but at the same time, his name means flight from death. Mm-hmm. I think we established in our very first podcast episode. Uh, but yet again, it's not just the the meaning of his name, but it's actually his physical features that communicate. Uh, something about the kind of character that he is. Another one that comes to mind to me is like Petunia Dursley. So Petunia is a sharp-featured woman. Uh, she's described as, as having very angular 
uh, features. And, and when she speaks, her, her character comes across very sharp, abrupt, abrasive. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of dialogue except when she's snapping. Another one would be Dudley. He's a bigger child, sort of um, one who indulges, and, but is also soft in, in a very sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Not sensitive, but he, he's not resilient. He, mm -hmm. He's easily uh, disturbed, fragile. interrupted. He's, yeah. He's, yeah, he's a very fragile character, but, but I think like the, particularly with his physical features, the softness of his character uh, tied in with the indulgence that he exhibits. Um, is, is again this corresponding of uh, physical features but also the, the personality that Rowling has given a character. It's just occurring to me now too as you were talking about Petunia um, the juxtaposition between Petunia and Lily using those two flower names but with Petunia it's kind of a, a goofy sort of flower that we don't really use for many things. It's the kind of name that you would give maybe to a farm animal. And she's described as horse-faced. Um, kind of a horsey woman. And then Lily is this beautiful, um, soft flower that we associate with death. And this is a character... Well, and peace and other things too, but but it's it's a, a flower that we associate with the dead, and she's this tragic martyred character. I just hadn't really thought about the flowers themselves being used as names until just now. So why do you think that is? Sam asks, is it just a British lit thing, or do you think Rowling is playing off of something else? I mean, she also uses, you know, lots of lots of names from Greek mythology. I think she just thinks very deeply about every one of her characters and likes for there to be meaning in small things. Um, we get so much insight. Like, if you just get introduced to a character and then you go and look up their name, you can learn so much about <laughs> the trajectory the character's on mm -hmm. and... And all of that just from their name. Mm -hmm. um, I just think I think she's brilliant that way. I don't know that it's so much a British literature thing. I think the exaggerated quality of mm -hmm. it. You know, we talked about how she she takes things and she exaggerates them to make them easily spotted, but also more entertaining, larger than life. It's, it is a fantasy world in spite of its realism in certain ways. Uh, and so I think uh, there there is a certain literary flair that we particularly see in British literature um, that she's tapping into. I would argue, though, that she's that it's not just literary creativity, but she's actually pointing out something that is kind of just true about life, which is that very often our bodies do reflect the kinds of people that we are, uh, particularly in the case of Moody. And Dudley, the lives that they have led are literally born out in their physical features. With somebody like Petunia, it doesn't work that way quite as easily. But um, Dudley's indulgence and uh, um, constant pampering has turned him into a large, soft, 
and emotionally fragile sort of person. Moody's difficult life, being scarred by uh, his battles, has literally left physical marks on his body. So I think there's, there's something that is actually quite realistic about that, although you, you'd have to be careful not to press it too far. Mm-hmm. Well, in uh, running the risk of pressing it a little too far, okay. uh, one of the names that has come up to me in this discussion is Gilderoy Lockhart's. Mm-hmm. Because to me it's a very, it's both a very unique name, but also one which I, I don't recall a lot in the book describing the physicality, like the actual physical features of Gilderoy Lockhart, other than that he is, he always makes this amazing impression on everybody, right? He has this, he captures everybody's imagination in his books. Um, it's clear that Hermione is quite taken with him immediately. Um, and uh, the name Gilderoy is one that is in itself deceptive because a lot of people derive the name as meaning the gilding of the king, Gilderoy, mm-hmm. which is actually a false derivation because it is not French, it's Gaelic. So it in fact means the son of the redheaded one. <laughs> But because it sounds enough like the French, a lot of people sort of made it seem fancier, more noble than it was, which I think fits Gilderoy's character perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that it was the essence of what he did with his career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for Rowling to have taken it to that next level, beyond just what the name appeared to be, but what the name, but using the appearance of the name and what the name actually was derived from, um, I think showed an especial attention well, to you, you can also, history. Yeah, you can also talk about, I mean, gilding something, you know, you're, you're overlaying it with gold and Absolutely. its essence is not actually, mm-hmm. it, it's, yeah. mm-hmm. it's something else. It's, it's not, it's shiny on the outside, but it is... Just, it's copper. It's, it's something else. It's something maybe, I mean, uh, less than, I guess, right. uh, on the mm-hmm. inside. And so I, that's a very good, I guess, name choice, you know, to use for this example. Well, on the Lockhart portion, he's a heartbreaker. And sounds like locket, like something that is concealed then, mm. like a secret, which is what his life is filled with. Yeah. So I'm back to the question of just, is it a British lit thing? We, I've been reading Raw Doll lately and recently watched, rewatched um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I mean, I think you see it is a British thing, absolutely, to have these exaggerated names. You just think Charlie Bucket, uh, Augustus Gloop, Veruca Salt, Billy Beauregard, Willy Wonka. I, all of those names are so evocative. Of, mm. And I think Raw Doll is someone who does that well. We've Dickens, yeah. Scrooge. Mm. I mean, there are so many of these evocative names and. I know mm-hmm. the question is about body types, but since we've taken this tangent on names, I absolutely yeah. think they're they're probably both British. Well, lit. to swing it back again to body type, I think Gilderoy is another perfect example of of that. You know, we I'm not sure off the top of my head what actual details were given about his appearance we and what what I'm importing from you know film number Kenneth two. Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, sir, sorry, <laughs> sir, sir, sir Kenneth Branagh. But. <laughs> 
you know, we, we do know that he is, he's vain. He mm. is self-infatuated, which is consistent with every physical detail that we have. That he is a, uh, a well-put-together, uh, always-polished-in-appearance sort of person, um, which... Celebrity is as celebrity does, Aaron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but again, that is one of the more realistic sorts of things. Vain people do care about their appearances. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that the appearance... But the body, the body type of the character actually matches the character of the character. I also think that J.K. Rowling is just so good immediately at giving us an impression of the character we're meeting that this is something she's so good at. Like, you know, Dumbledore, the first scene with him, we immediately know he's someone that we can trust and respect and who is going to give us the truth. And then his name means white. We talked about that earlier. So he's like pure. He's someone who um, is a symbol of good to us. So she's just so good at immediately setting us up to love or hate a character. I think about characters like Pansy Parkinson. Mm. Like her name just, it just... It grates on you. Right, yeah. You just, you think immediately like, ah, I don't like her. So she's really good at that too. So I think... In addition to it being a British literature thing, it's just something that J.K. Rowling does really well. Yeah. And I've actually seen that in some of her other books as well. What is the one character? Cormoran Strike. Oh. Shout out! <laughs> Millicent Bolstrode. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Poor Millicent. Victor Crumb. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Fleur de la Crumb. <laughs> right, oh, yeah. So yeah. good. So the, the names are, are real. They are. They're really evocative. Um, I really appreciate that what Sam was pointing out about body type and and bringing in like that sort of visual impression Uh, and i think tapping into not just the caricature of a body type but how how bodies can reflect the type of people that Mm -hmm. characters are to a certain extent well let's move on to uh, harry potter and the sorcerer's stone Uh, the last page of chapter 12 uh, we talked about uh, the last time we were together, where Dumbledore tells Harry uh, that what he sees when he looks in the mirror of Erised, um, and he says, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. We all assumed that Dumbledore was being coy there, that he was sort of diverting Harry's attention in typical Dumbledore uh, fashion. But Sylvia and I were listening recently to book seven, where... Uh, Rita Skeeter's uh, biography or hack job and Elphias Doge's um, memories of, of Dumbledore as a child uh, brought up um, his youth and the tragedy that his family faced. And in the middle of that, I, I said, Sylvia, stop it. What if um, Dumbledore is being honest when he says he sees... Uh, himself holding a pair of thick woolen socks that that's actually some a christmas present you know it's christmas time around these parts what if he sees himself holding uh, a christmas present um, and like you know rosebud in citizen kane associates that one thing with the innocence of childhood before his life really took a turn towards tragedy Uh, and my thought was i'm keeping an eye out in these upcoming fantastic beast movies to see if there is any sort of scene uh, whatsoever where I can claim that Dumbledore is associating his backstory with thick woolen socks. That just seemed to me the sort of thing that um, 
Rowling would hold on to, uh, that it would actually be a meaningful detail rather than a sort of throwaway diversion. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? I like it. I think it would be really cool if that ended up being the truth. I like it, but I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, I, I still think that it shows you your deepest heart's desire. He may want that to be his desire, uh, mm. of uh, you know, like a, a return to innocence. He may want that, but I feel like we've already seen that he puts, or sorry, in future books, you know, we see he puts the ring on. He still has that desire, that deep burning desire that he wants to somehow complete the quest for finding the Deathly Hallows, and I. I mean, I, I see where you're, what you're saying, but I'm going to have to disagree, Trevor. Matt, first of all, you're dead to me. <laughs> Second of all, humans are conflicted creatures. I agree with you there. And, and so I think it's, it's entirely possible that at times Dumbledore yearns, still yearns and is tempted toward the pursuit of the Deathly Hallows. And yet the desire underneath all of his desire is this sense of, of loss and regret um, at what the pursuit of the Hallows cost him. Mm-hmm. And if he were as omniscient-seeming as Dumbledore is at times, he knows his own weakness for power. And don't you think when he looked in a mirror that showed him his deepest heart's desire that it wouldn't be there is an innocent Dumbledore standing there holding socks with his family rather than a Dumbledore who's thirsting for power? Mm. My own thought is that that sort of flies in the face of what I think Dumbledore is trying to teach Harry in this, right? I mean, Harry just talked about his desires, and we've seen Ron's desires, and, you know, he just explained how the person who was perfectly content would just see himself, and all he says is that he would see himself and a pair of socks, which is not much more than himself. Which is to say, Dumbledore is fulfilling the archetype of the perfect wise man, the archetype of sort of the Gandalfian wizard that is not quite omniscient, that makes mistakes, that is human in all sorts of ways that we can relate to him, so he's not sort of distant and difficult. But, you know, where the perfect person would be just himself, (laughs) he is himself and a pair of socks. socks. So you think... Mm. The Dumbledore is is setting himself up in Harry's eyes there as almost perfect. Almost perfect. Not not quite, but a little quirky. Well, but well, yeah, is, and we all we also know which is how we see him. Dumbledore loves for a lot of the books, right? We learned this Dumbledore in in, in uh, movie seven, right? When <laughs> they go and um, uh, deal with uh, Horace Slughorn. Horace Slughorn. And they, he uses the restroom. He finds a magazine there. The magazine is full of knitting patterns. He has to borrow it, even though it's not horses to lend. This was the, the Muggle family's magazine. So this is clearly something that he enjoys, that he is, has interests in. Wool. Uh, uh, knitting in general. So that's interesting because, well, A, this is all predicated on the fact that Dumbledore isn't blowing smoke when he says he sees himself with a pair of socks. Which but, I think he is. Well, well, no, I'm saying that as well. I'm yeah. saying he is so sort of possibly blowing smoke so long as he is presenting to Harry 
this image of himself as mm. not not quite the perfect spiritual guide, the all wise, no, but pretty close. But if it, if he's blowing smoke, then he's not really the person he's presenting to Harry. Yes, but is just trying to motivate Harry towards obeying him. Okay. Or that, that too, possibly. Okay. Being happy about listening to him, oh. even though in the future he may be giving him only partial information for a task that may be very difficult to endure, and ha- he might have to trust what Dumbledore has told him, even though the evidence before him may not seem as credible as he'd like it to be. But now you have a very impressionable young boy that you are consistently giving this image of total faithfulness to. Um in order so that when that boy is older, he will do as he is told. And he will do so faithfully to the very end. Mm. I like that too. Lots of theories to throw around. Yeah. One thing is uh, certain, I hope, that we actually get some resolution on this point with Dumbledore's backstory. Um, I'm not sure how likely that is, um, but... You know, these these highly speculative sorts of hypotheses, they're quite fun to mm-hmm. try and mm-hmm. tease out the, what is Rowling thinking? What kind of character is Dumbledore really? Like, what could be going on here under the surface? Is there a meaning that we've never stumbled on before? That's part of the fun, dear listener, of walking through these books all over again uh, with, with us and for us doing it with you and with one another. But that was the last page of Chapter 12. It's time to turn to Chapter 13. <laughs> where we're told uh, that Dumbledore had convinced Harry uh, that it was uh, time not to go to the Mirror said anymore. Uh, so Harry folds up his invisibility cloak, uh, and it stayed there at the bottom of his trunk. Then we're told Harry wished he could forget what he'd seen in the mirror as easily, but he couldn't. We're only uh, two sentences in, and I was already struck with the, the pain and the longing that Rowling is is presenting to us in Harry. And it struck me, again, as being uh, incredibly true to the nature of desire, which is something that I think Rowling does even in this very childish book one uh, incredibly well. She presents to us the dynamics of human desire in really realistic terms. Um, Harry has had something that he's always longed for, sort of in his imagination, presented to him before his eyes. His desire has been awakened. He's seen himself with his parents. It's taken on form for him. It's presented to him as something that's almost possible to attain. He entertains the idea. Could it be? Um, and now he can't shake the desire. It's, al- it's almost become a, a preoccupation. He can't as easily forget well, what he saw in the mirror. Not only that, he's actually lost his parents again because in the very next few sentences, he says he started having nightmares mm-hmm. and over and over again, he dreamed about his parents disappearing in a flash of green light, mm-hmm. you know, with a, a cackled laughter. So he's losing his parents all over again. Mm-hmm. So the pain is very real to Harry yeah. in this moment. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we've heard him talk about, you know, how sometimes he would have strange dreams about that flash of green light. Um, But I think this is the first time we're here, y'all correct me if you know I'm wrong, 
I think this is the first time we're hearing about the high voice cackling with laughter. Almost like seeing his parents' images in the mirror has unlocked that actual memory of their death. He still doesn't know, I mean, really what happened that night. He knows that Voldemort murdered them. But I don't, Alex mentioned, like, he never really had faces to put to his parents before because he was so young. Mm. And now that he's seen them, it's, like, triggered more of the memory that he didn't have before. And so now it's starting to unfold. Yeah. Well, even, like, if you think about it in terms of physical proximity, he was within an arm's length of touching the faces of the people he longed to be with most. Mm-hmm. Now, they were still in the mirror, so to speak, but there was a physical closeness. Uh, his body, in some sense, next to theirs that he had never enjoyed before, except perhaps in, in dreams, in imaginings. Um, and I, I, I just... I know that when I look at myself, when desire is awakened in that way, it takes on a life of its own. Now, I may have longed for something deeply, but when it's right in front of me and then taken away, the desire can can very easily become an all-consuming sort of thing. And I think most of our listeners would probably be able to resonate with that as well, how a desire almost fulfilled but disappointed can easily tip into the area of obsession mm-hmm. or madness or which madness. which is what Dumbledore yeah. says you know you can go mad mm-hmm. from standing in front of your desires and right. almost touching right. them but not being able to actually grasp it yeah. and when we first get that detail it's you can go mad from just sitting there looking at it and losing all sort of uh, orientation toward reality but even if you escape from the gaze of the mirror, um, you leave a changed person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like a torture device when you would think of it like that. <laughs> that this would be the kind of thing they'd put in a Azkaban. Mm-hmm. Make well, a prisoner sit in front of the mirror of Avisad for years and years and have it drive them insane. Well, we have another fiction writer who uses one of these um, psychological amplifiers, Tolkien, with his ring of power, mm-hmm. and it uh, it could quite <coughs> easily be characterized as a torture device. That this maybe the most torturous part of the Mirror of said and the Ring of Power, though, are that they are tortures that the tortured would willingly choose. Mm-hmm. It is a, it is a, it is a self imposed type of torment, mm-hmm. but I think both of them, both Rowling and Tolkien, are trying to say something quite deep about the dynamics of the human heart, and the way that we cultivate desire, um, and uh, feed on it, and allow it to turn us into um, something perhaps less than fully human. And although. Tolkien's Ring of Power is one which really only one person can use at a time. This this uh, is sort of a halfway point, I would say, between the description of desires, manipulation of of the human consciousness, of the of the human will, um, 
between between that and and the way that we see it in Huxley's Brave New World, where the whole population mm. has been mm-hmm. so conformed to by entertainment and drugs and all sorts of other things to desire what really tortures them. The Mirror of Erised is sort of halfway in between, right? Because more than one person can use it at once. You don't need to just put on the ring and then it's just yours. Ron and, and Harry can both be standing in front of the mirror and both be driven similarly insane by it um, if they were to stay there long enough. Um, it's interesting how we have all these authors that sort of portray these devices at different levels, right? There's the movie theater type in Huxley's Brave New World. There's the mirror in uh, the Harry Potter universe, and there's the ring in Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Well, on a, I guess, lighter note, I mean, what they're coming back from uh, uh, Christmas break, and I mean, I, I thought it was funny and actually kind of chuckled a little bit when Hermione comes back, you know, and uh, she was horrified by the idea of Harry being out of bed, but then also a little disappointed that they hadn't found out who Nicholas Fumel was, you know, even though he was striving to get that name, you know, while out of bed. And so I just chuckled to myself a little bit that that is kind of uh, Hermione, you know, I guess uh, depicted right there. It's It was just humorous to me. Mm-hmm. Do you often chuckle out loud? Uh, it's, you know, it's not you know not a lot, but occasionally, yes. Mm. I'd like to see that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of funny. Crystal can tell you. I've never heard you chuckle. Please. <laughs> so we're getting into um, another Quidditch match here, uh, and it's mentioned that if. Gryffindor wins the next match against Hufflepuff, then they'll overtake Slytherin in the house championship for the first time in seven years. Do you guys think there, I mean, seven is, seven is such an important number. I feel like there's a reason that she used it. Do you guys have any, any theories on that? I mean, I think we've already firmly established that there are many color references throughout the entire... Uh, book here, and so uh, as well as the names that we've mm-hmm. spoken about, you know, at the beginning of this podcast. So I think definitely that she's using numbers as well. Would not put it past Rowling. Well, seven is the most magically uh, powerful number. I think. I think Voldemort sort of asks that question in book six when he approaches Slughorn. Um, he's. I think he says like, for instance, isn't seven the most magically powerful number? Or something like that. So I think, I for me, the way I interpreted that when you said it was, Harry must be really good <laughs> if he can break this powerful seven-year lead that Slytherin uh-huh. somehow has. And maybe it was like sort of the same, you know, in the Chamber of Secrets. It took, you know, the heir of Gryffindor, so to speak, to defeat the heir of Slytherin. And here's Harry, like, doing that in book one as well, even though it's something as trivial as Quidditch. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely saying something that there's possi- there's the possibility of a change coming, um, which I think you can probably take further than just the Quidditch match. You know, there is this very real possibility that um, Harry and the Gryffindors can win, um, and this, I guess, has further reaching implications if you 
uh, are taking this as you know symbolism that something is changing right now. Something well, has the potential to change. And changing in almost parallel fashion because mm-hmm. the next seven years, yes, in our seven books, will be the years of Gryffindor. Yes, yeah. Yeah. which is the year of Harry Potter. Yes. yes. I like that. So, yeah. I hate I hate to agree with you, Matt. You know this. <laughs> I know. I absolutely <laughs> hate to agree, with you. but I. I the uh, the detail with Nicholas Flamel, which we'll see later on, um, Rowling presents him as 665 mm-hmm. years old. He's one year removed from what is in sort of numerological um, speak, you know, a, a significant number, mm-hmm. 666. You know, that's, that's something that comes from uh, the Bible and the book of Revelation, sort of this number of the beast associated with evil. Mm-hmm. Um so I wonder if she's she's toying around with numbers in a a fun but symbolic sort of way that Flamel we know will end up getting rid of the sorcerer's stone by the end of this book mm-hmm. stopping one year short of 666. That's something that's always I've always wondered about like I'm not I'm not sure what the significance would be of that symbolism, um, but you bringing up her her playing around with numbers sort of brought that back to mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, seven is I think often used as a number of completeness, so it would make sense. Sort of Slytherin's reign has run, and then there's going to be seven years of Gryffindor, and then perhaps something else. I mean, seven days of creation. Um, you know, they talk about Noah was commanded to bring seven pairs of every clean animal into the ark. Um, seven years of plenty in the visions of Pharaoh's dream. Seven years of famine. Seven years of famine. Seven weeks of um, children. Seven. <laughs> bring it back. Bring it back. Seven Very good point. <laughs> so obviously she's doing something with numbers, or mm-hmm. at least there's. I guess the symbolism is just right for the picking there. Yeah. Well, so we find out there's a bit of a catch with this um, with this match. I guess since Madame Hooch is such a terrible ref, um, and probably also because Snape asked to ref after the incident with Harry's broomstick, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Snape is going to be the referee, and all the Gryffindors are in an uproar because they just know he's going to be biased towards anybody but Gryffindor because he hates Harry and he hates Gryffindor. So they're pretty sure that Hufflepuff is going to win, and it'll be Snape's fault. You know, I was actually wondering about this. I know, you know, I mean, right off the bat when you read it, it's like Snape is refereeing this very important match where Gryffindor has a chance to overtake Slytherin. And we know that Snape is is not above, you know, I guess cheating for the Slytherins, or at least, you know, I mean... I guess throwing some of some of the rules under the bus, you know, to, to have his team go ahead. But um, I was wondering what you guys thought about perhaps Snape being in this position to help Harry, or rather to protect Harry, um, because of what happened in the last match. And the reason I say that is, you know, you read that, and they're saying, you know, Snape never referees, so why, why is he refereeing? Um, and you know, you can say, oh, he wants Slytherin to win, but you can also say he's per- perhaps trying to protect Harry, because in the next couple of pages, uh, Harry is also 
you know, saying something like he's he, whether he's imagining or it or not, you know, he was running into Snape wherever he went. You know, I mean, it was it was like every you know corner he was turning down, Snape was there. So it almost seems like Snape is following Harry in order to figure out what's going on. He's 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 worried about Harry and actually protecting him in this moment. I think, exactly. I think that's exactly yeah. because the last yeah. match when he was like he was protecting against Quirrell with the counter curse. I think Quirrell even confirms that in the last chapter. Mm, I think he right? even says like, "Why does Quirrell, or why do you think Sna- Snape wanted to referee the next match, or something like that?" I think he confirms it. Does he? Okay. Yeah, but I definitely think that's what's going on. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's a really good sort of like plot device that J.K. Rowling uses because it sets Snape up to be the villain that we hate, and he covers up, like, the true bad guy, which is Quirrell. So I think that's, I I mean, yeah, I think you're spot on there, but I I do think that it's a really good way for us to continue hating Snape and overlooking Quirrell. Do they explain why it is that Madame Hooch couldn't referee this round? It seemed like that was just not being able to do it. I think Snape asked to referee. It was was probably something of that sort. Also, Dumbledore's (laughs) coming to the match. You know, maybe he's, you know, Harry's last match, he almost was killed. And so he's there. You know, there's a lot of extra protection. I'm assuming that Madame Hooch probably isn't the best, I guess, protector. Maybe (laughs) she, she doesn't have, you know, the skill with the wand that Snape has. I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about. Do you guys think that Dumbledore knows about Quirrell? Yes. Or at least he suspects him because in the pensive in book seven, he tells Snape to keep an eye on Quirrell specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and we see, we do see Dumbledore shows up at this match after the incident with Harry. Now he's going to be present and Snape is on the pitch. You know, like there's much more protection going on now. Um, I just, I just wondered what you guys thought about that. If Snape was mostly acting on his own or if he is being, so we do know that he's. Yeah, yeah I well, actually, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I actually thought about that today when I was reading it. I thought about in the chapter of the Princess Tell when, um, Snape is just reflecting on, you know, his protection of Harry over the years that it specifically mentions that, you know, keep an eye on Quirrell. And I wondered then, like, is this why Snape chose to referee this match, even though he knew and Quirrell says that too, even though he knew he was going to be, you know, hated for it because he mm-hmm. he received ridicule from I think probably McGonagall and teachers. I mean, I'm you know guessing, but probably. well, he didn't have to be the way he was. He didn't have to right. be super biased and <laughs> right. and cheat. But he could have just been there and at refereed. the end of this chapter, the conversation that is sort of interrupted by this strange loud hooting owl. Yeah, like it, which makes it tough. <laughs> Again, Rowling is concealing there what, what's really going on. But we know with hindsight um, as a resource that Snape already knows that Quirrell is the one responsible for what's going on. And he's, he's taking him to task for it. And if Snape knows, then given the relationship between Snape and Dumbledore, I think it's safe to say that Dumbledore knows everything that, that Snape knows. Which begs the question, why does Dumbledore let all of this play out? Is it another one of those moments where he's just, like, set this gambit for Harry and he's like, let's let's let him test his mettle, see how he does against a minor henchman of Voldemort, and then he'll be ready later. I mean, it. you know, if he knows, how much does he know? Does he know... Yeah. That quarrels after the stone, or does he know why quarrels after the stone? 
That's that's a good question. To me, that is one of the most pressing questions of the entire seven book narrative. How much does Dumbledore yeah. know? How well? How much does Dumbledore Dumbledore know? And why in the world doesn't he do something about yeah. it? Yeah, right. Because we know that he knows certain things, but I think periodically, if throughout the canon, if you're paying attention to it and looking for those details, Rowling will slip in something where Dumbledore expresses regret that he didn't do something sooner. Or he'll say, if I could go back, you know, to to this scenario, I wouldn't have responded in quite the way that I did, Harry. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sorry for that. And it's sort of playing into that uh, human, um, erring, fallible Dumbledore uh, type. Um, so it seems like Rowling at times gives the reader details that that try to answer those questions and say, but I think that it's a hard answer to try to psychologize with Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of the difficulty is is within the nature of any kind of counterintelligence. I mean, I think this is really exemplified well. Um, if you all have seen the movie The Imitation Game, where they're listening in on Nazi broadcasts of attacks on ships and, and bombings of cities, they're getting all this information in. And some of it they know is fake, some of it they know is true. But if they act too frequently on what is given to them, it will be clear that they have somebody on the inside. It will be evident to the Nazis that they understand the communications, they will change the code, which is very easy for them to do, and then they won't get anything. Then the whole process will have to start over again, which would be an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And sort of analogizing to this situation, if he does too much, it becomes obvious that he has a man on the inside, Snape, who then would be given up, likely to death, and the whole process of having to try to start again to find a new inside person to understand what's going on would have to all start over again. The whole, all the networks that would that be created would, you know, there'd be a crisis of faith with who can trust Dumbledore if he's not able to deliver um, security. Uh, so I guess in this case, I, I think we we need to see that our hindsight is twenty twenty. We know what risks he could have taken and been successful at the time he doesn't know that he doesn't know what he's going to be successful at hiding what he's not going to be successful so at. i would say that makes sense later when voldemort mm-hmm. is back and snape is a double agent again right. but i'd say in this moment snape is not subtle he is he is continually pressing quarrel and saying you know i know what you're up to you don't want me as your enemy and, uh, and voldemort is not a threat at this point right voldemort hiding in the back of somebody's head like he's he's not the dark lord yet so I, I agree. Like that's, that's la- later on, yeah. um, that sort of I mean, dynamic is much. definitely yeah. is definitely present, and I think that's really helpful. Early on, though, he's got it. I mean, Voldemort is weak. He's vulnerable. He has not yet risen to power. And I mean, if Dumbledore acts decisively in Book One, well, then Harry Potter was one great children's story. Actually, it probably wouldn't be that great because it would have been all over. And then, oh man, that was lame. And they yeah. lived happily ever after. That oh, guy man. lived. That's nice. Yeah. The end. But again, I think you know, even with all of the sophisticated sort of reasoning that you were doing, we're still brought back to. 
well, but it's hard to make sense of why Dumbledore <laughs> didn't do something here or in book two or in book three or even early in book four. Like, he, half of the canon is before Voldemort's rise again mm-hmm. to bodily form even. Mm-hmm. Like, or at least sustainable bo- bodily form, right. let alone to power. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, we could we could talk for a whole podcast on what does Dumbledore know and why didn't he do something, but... Um, moving on. Yeah, moving on. Well, they talk about, I guess, uh, you know, what Harry should do. I mean, he shouldn't play. He should, you know, you know fake an illness or act like he broke his leg or really break his leg. <laughs> um, and then I think a really important scene comes up... Uh, and it's that Neville comes, I guess, hobbling in, his legs stuck together with a leg locker curse, uh, falling all over himself. And, you know, uh, I mean, it is a humorous scene, and it's, it's, it's all poor Neville. Um, you know, he falls in, and, uh, you know, Harry and Ron, they both laugh, and Hermione comes to the rescue over there, and, of course, you know, quick-witted, she uh, undoes the, undoes the charm, but... Uh, we have a, a really interesting scene, I think, here that we need to talk about. I, yeah, I had, I had forgotten this scene. And it's so sweet between Harry and Neville. Harry said, because it was Malfoy that had done the leg locker curse, right? Mm-hmm. And Harry says to Neville, you're worth 12 of Malfoy. And he gives him his last chocolate frog from Christmas. He says, the sorting hat chose you for Gryffindor, didn't it? And where's Malfoy in stinking Slytherin? Um, and and even before that, I'll just add this, you know, like, you know, they're they're telling him, Neville, you've got to stand up for yourself. Yeah. You know, you've got to, you know, back down, Malfoy. And he said, you know, there's no need uh, to tell me that I'm not brave enough to be in Gryffindor. Malfoy has already done that, and that's kind of heartbreaking to me yeah. to hear that. You know, it's and. I think we had a, a guest um, actually read, uh, or actually have a question about that. Yeah, so we have this, um, we have one of our fans sent us an email, Leonard sent us an email about the houses. Um, he asks, if we've heard about the theory that everyone in Gryffindor chooses that house because anyone can choose to be brave, um, which is... Not a theory I had really thought of, um, because we don't hear a whole lot of, of other people's choices coming into play. We just know that Harry chose Gryffindor, or Harry chose not Slytherin. And there's sort of an implication that maybe Hermione might have chosen Gryffindor, because she does say that the Sorting Hat seriously considered putting her in Ravenclaw. And we don't know if she chose ultimately or it chose for her, but there is that indication. Right. Um, so, what do, you, what do you guys think about that? Do you think that... Um, do you think that Gryffindor is the house that everybody wants to be in and that's why there's such an amalgamation of characters in it? Like, there are so many people that you think, like Neville... He's not really suited for Gryffindor, but then he grows into it, right? Or Hermione, she's not really suited for Gryffindor. She should have been in Ravenclaw. You know, there's so many characters in Gryffindor 
that kind of grow into the Gryffindor aesthetic um, based on the choices that they make. What do you guys think about that? I don't think that's that different from any of the other houses. I mean, I think all of the characters in the different houses, the, the deeper you understand them, the more you see how they are affected over the years by the sort of culture of their house um, and driven in certain directions. Do you think there's really sweet kids that go into Slytherin and then get turned ugly? I think there are kids that go into Slytherin that have more of a sense of, of loyalty or intellectual curiosity or um, kindness that is mixed with deep and abiding ambition mm -hmm. and that ambition mm -hmm. overtakes other things. Uh, not to say that those things are never present. I mean, I, I think we see later on how, um, you know, when, when Harry's face is, is disformed and, and he's brought before Malfoy, yet Malfoy doesn't give him away. To me, that was such an unbelievable scene. I mean, if you spent so many years so close to somebody, you you would recognize them even when their face is blown up because of whatever it might be. Um, you would know this is this is the same person. They have the same walk. They have the same build. Right? You wouldn't even need to look at their face to know they're basically the same. But he doesn't give them up. You know, there's still something there that makes him you know, however much he may be pushed in that in that direction of all-consuming ambition, um, that he's not at the same level. That's interesting. In, in in that sense, all it would take is the seeds of a house's particular character, and then the cultivation that happens among that peer group, mm -hmm. and sort of prioritize that, bring it to full bloom. Um, and we're seeing that happen right here. Everybody in Gryffindor is encouraging Neville to stand up to a bully. Yeah, which eventually he does. Which eventually he does. Yeah. And then even to his friends later, he stands yeah. up to people that he cares about. Which brings us to the question, does, does Neville eventually live like a Gryffindor because the sorting, house, the sorting Hat saw that he was a Gryffindor all along, or because he became the kind of person who could live into Gryffindor's character by being surrounded by Gryffindors. And, and this is sort of an unanswerable question, right. but yeah. it sort of hits at the complexity of how we become the people that we are. Mm -hmm. Is it a matter of this is always what I innately was, or it, is it a matter of this is what the people and environment around me brought out of me? I think the yeah. answer is always in our lives a very complex mix right. of both. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about, you know, if we had this same kind of inside view, except in a different house, you know, what would, what would the response be in those situations, right? When a kid is bullied in Hufflepuff, right? What, why, why does it have to be Hufflepuff? It doesn't have to be. <laughs> when a kid is bullied in Ravenclaw, like, what, what happens? You know, is it, is it, do you get encouraged by your fellow classmates if you're a Ravenclaw, it, it, other people in Ravenclaw house, by them asking you, you know, well, what were the details of the situation and, and getting it all laid out logically and then being able to say, no, you were right. You were right and they were wrong. Don't worry, we all confirm your opinion. Your logic is sound. Or, you know, 
when you when you're bullied in Huff, in Hufflepuff, does somebody just like bring you a muffin? Yeah, I think uh, the chocolate like, frog thing still happens, but uh, that's it. They're like, oh, that's rough, buddy. That that stinks. <laughs> Here's and, some or, chocolate. Like, you're a you Hufflepuff. Know, do we do we need to you know you know maybe next time you know you could bring them a muffin? You know? <laughs> uh, like what? I don't know. You know, with Slytherin, maybe it's like okay, all right. So you're if, if, you, if you put this into your tea into that guy's tea, then they're going to be throwing up for weeks, and right. that's how you're going to get him back, or whatever else it might be. Um, yeah. You know, oh, we put the it's leg just... locker curse on him. Let's let's break his kneecaps next time. Right, right. right. <laughs> we'll get a bunch of guys. Um, I don't know. That's that's sort of what I think about. I think there's also again a literary reason. Um, I think all of the, all of the things that we brought up are are plausible. I also think it would be a pretty lame story if everyone in the the house that is the central focus of the story bore the same yeah. like major personality traits. We we require that kind of there there are certain types of characters that are necessary for this story to actually have motion and and dynamism and creativity and variety. Uh, if everyone was a hairy sort of character in the Golden Trio, it would be a like a really boring, odd sort of tale. The other thought I had when dealing with the question of whether or not people choose Gryffindor, well, it, it would seem to me like in many cases, well, in, in two other cases, there would also be people who would choose that house, right? There's certain people that seem to choose Slytherin because there are other purebloods that also want to be in Slytherin. And there would also be those in Ravenclaw that desire that kind of intellectual stimulation that just love that and so would choose that. And then everybody else who either doesn't choose anything or just wants to be in Hufflepuff would end up in Hufflepuff. And it seems like that just matches what the founders wanted, right? The founders wanted the brave, the Gryffindor, Gryffindor wanted the brave people in his house. Ravenclaw wanted the smart people in her house. Uh, Slytherin wanted the ambitious people in his house. And so they get what they asked for. Um, and they, it seems like that's what the sorting hat gives them. Not what the kids necessarily wanted, maybe, but... What the founders wanted. Well, through Harry's nice gesture of giving Neville a chocolate frog and getting the card, they were able to finally find Nicholas Fomel after, I don't know how many weeks or months of searching. Um, it's just by happenstance. He knew he had found him. You know, he knew he had heard the name before, and they finally found him on uh, a card with Dumbledore. I think it's a fun detail a, that we're told Nicholas Flamel is married to his wife, Perinelle, who actually, in history, was mm -hmm. the real Nicholas Flamel's wife. Yep. Also, that Nicholas Flamel enjoys a quiet life in Devon, which is the, I guess it would be a, a county, a shire, I don't know, the area of England where uh, J.K. Rowling went to college at the University of Exeter. In Devon, mm. um, so she, she, we, we talked before about how she slipped architectural and geographic um, homages to that university area uh, into the story. Um, 
And this is another geographic sort of nod to a place where she spent a lot of very formative years. To those that can't sort of picture it, Devon is on the pretty much the furthest southwest part of England that you can be on, until you reach Cornwall. So you're 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 on that little part of England that sticks out just south of, of Wales, out towards the Atlantic, but you're not you're not quite at Penzance yet. You're you're a little bit closer than that. Yes. Gotcha. Well, my this is completely changing the topic. May I have the permission of the Ooh. book club to do that? Mm-hmm. Permission granted. So this is jumping forward to the biggest thing that jumped out at me in this whole chapter. It was something that caused me pause and just seemed a little bit weird. And it is on two twenty one. Uh, when it says that Neville couldn't understand why Ron and Hermione had both brought their wands to the match. And I just thought, what in the world? I mean, why wouldn't everyone bring their wands everywhere? Hmm. So a couple different thoughts. My first thought was, well, this is sort of, you know, rolling evolves as the books go on. And so that's something that maybe changed and was a little bit inconsistent. The second thought was perhaps it's unique to Neville. Neville sort of is naively leaving his wand at home and going out and thinking it's a little bit odd that people might carry their wands at all times. So I go back and forth on that, but it just stood out to me as odd to be surprised that they would bring their wands. I think that's funny because I actually read, I thought the same thing. I thought it was more the (coughs) first case that you mentioned and that it's just a little bit of an inconsistency because I think, you know, like we, we, when they were talking about wands in later books, you know, they're talking about, I know Harry loses his wand and it's like a piece of him is gone. You know, you always have your wand no matter what. And I just feel like uh, this is just something, I guess, she's warming up. I don't know. It's the first book and it didn't really have it down pat. I don't know what everyone else thinks. I thought it was a sign of perhaps related to this immaturity, but this is the first year. So perhaps, you're, yeah. you're not quite used to carrying a wand around everywhere. Yeah. You just got it a few months ago. You don't really know what to do with it. You don't really yeah, know what to do with it. You don't know anything you, you don't can really, do. I mean, the, the spells are very introductory. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how I attribute it. Yeah. I honestly didn't notice it when I read it. It didn't occur to me. But yeah, I think, I, I like Alex's point of them being first years it's kind of like what well except you know Hermione obviously brings hers right to the match she's brought it before but she's brought it before and she's very advanced Mm -hmm. she used her spells Ron hates ever looking like he's being outdone by Hermione like he couldn't do what she does so he brings hers too he brings his wand as well well we know why they brought the wands well yeah but not like not like Ron's gonna be able to protect Harry (laughs) at this point Wingardium Leviosa right yeah (laughs) good work Ron um well reverting uh, I think back uh to they finally find out that Nicholas Flamel is the creator of the Sorcerer's Stone and I think this is as good a time as any I can't remember if we talked about this before but uh, I think in England, the name of the book is not the Sorcerer's Stone, right. but the Philosopher's Stone. Right. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that. Why did they change it for the American version for the Sorcerer's Stone? Marketing. Marketing. 
Well, also, I mean, I think a lot of more Americans would be confused by the idea of something like a philosopher's stone. Yeah. It's, we need it to be more obvious. More obviously magical. More obviously magical. Exactly right. Mm. Whereas I think perhaps better educated people in Europe would understand that you <laughs> know, the term philosopher... It's a dumbing down, you think? It's a dumbing down, yeah. Because people, I think, there would be more immediately connect you know, philosophy, especially philosophy and witchcraft, to alchemy. I, from which the idea of the philosopher's stone is is you know derived. Um, I actually have it here, uh, googling it, um, and it's something that unfortunately our heroes do not have is Google, which they could have found Nicholas Vamel almost immediately, yeah. <laughs> just like we did. Yeah, just like How we is did. There but not some kind of uh, wizard internet. It says, it says the reason is uh, that. Publishers were concerned that most American readers would not be familiar enough with the term Philosopher's Stone. Mm -hmm. Like we were familiar with Sorcerer's Stone? I, I know. But I don't, yeah. I don't quite get that. But, that. but, I mean, really, the Philosopher's Stone was a real thing, you know, and it was something that people, you know, devoted their lives, their entire lives to defining. It was, you know, alchemy, and, I mean, it was turning... Uh, metal into gold, and not only that, but you know the elixir of life and being, you know, immortality. Um, so just what Rowling says right here, I guess in the book, was also what real people in real life who they devoted their entire lives to, they they strove to, to get there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she says that Nicholas Femel, who he was an actual person who devoted himself to alchemy. Um, you know, he I guess found it in Rawlings book in Harry Potter. Is it is it just the term philosopher's stone or or also just the term philosopher? Yeah. I mean it's Americans in we don't teach philosophy as part of really any course in the standard curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, there's a lot of countries in Europe, I know in France, um taking philosophy is like a standard part of the of the high school curriculum. You're like you're not going to graduate high school in France without having read some of the seminal texts from philosophy like, you know, Descartes' Discourse on Method and, and other things like that. Um, so the whole concept of there being a person, a profession, a philosopher, um, is sort of abnormal and, and weird. Even weirder than the idea of a sorcerer in the United States yeah. um, <laughs> compared I, I to, to Europe. I have to think it was an initial marketing tactic because they needed American attention to be grabbed because this idea that we aren't familiar with the concept of a philosopher's stone we're not we're not familiar with the concept of a sorcerer's stone and in both cases the narrative defines that for us mm -hmm. the narrative creates a universe in which these objects exist whether or not you're familiar with some quest for that um, at, at some earlier time in history yeah I have read that Rowling regretted the change, and from then on out, she was like, we're keeping it the same between the books. She didn't like that decision, in retrospect, to change it for the Americans. Um, and I also want to bring up, when I was looking up the Philosopher's Stone, I found the symbol that they used, I guess, in the 16th or 17th century that was for alchemy and 
I, the Philosopher's Stone, and I'm showing it to my members right no. now. What? If no. you want, if, no. if you want to look up squared circle, please, viewers, look that up and look how similar it looks to the Deathly Hallows. That's an alchemic sign. That that is the sign that they used. It's actually you know a circle. It's a well, starting from the inside out, it's a circle within a square, within a triangle, within a circle. So it's got a but, square. But that that. Extra. Visual similarity makes perfect sense oh because the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone is about the pursuit of immortality, which is precisely what the Deathly Hallows is yes. all about as well. Yeah. So I, I would encourage you to go we look can tweet up that yes, out. squared circle is what you need to look up, but it looks very, very similar, and it just blew my mind that <laughs> it looks so similar to the Deathly Hallows. If you are not frequently checking the Google while reading the Sorcerer's Stone. You know, it, it can be a really helpful resource for making <laughs> these connections between history, symbolism, and, and the text. Mm -hmm. one, one detail I wanted to bring up yeah. that we haven't talked about yet. We did talk about how Harry felt that Snape was following him. And at this point, he's suspicious of Snape's motives, although we know what Snape's motives really are. And yet there's this, um, this phrase on 221... Could Snape possibly know they'd found out about the Sorcerer's Stone? Harry's still wondering um, why Snape is following him. And then we're told, Harry didn't see how he could, yet he sometimes had the horrible feeling that Snape could read minds. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And there, there we are. We've got Legilimens yeah. versus Occlumency. We've got, you know, these, these beautiful sort of hidden phrases. I, I can't imagine how much self-control it would take for an author who probably at this point doesn't know if the first book is even going to be published, let alone if she's going to eventually get to book... What is it? Is it is it book six when Harry's taking occlumency lessons? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is five books removed and she's dropping a hint here that is only yeah. going to pay off that makes me If mad. we finally get That's to awesome. book six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is, it, I, I think, per, you know, evidence of the level of detail that Rowling had to go to in her imagination and in her notes, in her own personal papers, um, before she ever set pen to paper on the finish, what would become the finished product mm -hmm. of Sorcerer's Stone. And I think part of the reason why we don't see stories crafted the way we do is because the level of discipline, concentration, um, and patience it takes to craft a narrative mm. like that. To literally know a detail like that from book six before you write book one. I mean... Yeah. That's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. How, how many how many authors take the time to develop their characters to that level of detail? But we saw that in chapter one. Yeah. Yep. We said we got details in chapter one. We're not going to get to till book seven. Yeah. yeah. And yet it's it's all there swirling around, which lends even in the children's book a certain gravitas mm -hmm. that this is an actual sustained universe in which we're dwelling. It's not some ramshackle, uh, random spur-of-the-moment decision that the author's throwing in there because she couldn't find 
anything better to fill yeah. the space in the page. Right. I hadn't noticed that. No. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> um, so, uh, we get to the Quidditch match. Snape is refereeing. He is being terrible. But not for too long. But not for too long, uh, because, you know, while, while we're hearing uh, Malfoy picking on Neville and Ron and, and sniping at Harry in the stands, Harry catches the snitch in less than five minutes. Some kind of crazy record. Um, and ends the game, which Snape is furious about because he didn't get to harass the Gryffindors as long as he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yes, Alex? Well, I remember thinking that was very suspicious. What? That this is a, that he somehow that Harry somehow caught the snitch in under five minutes. It's a conspiracy. Well, or? that perhaps Snape recognizing the danger that existed in the last match mm-hmm. desired through various charms or other implements. I don't know. Uh, made it easy. For Harry to catch that snitch. I think it'd be very easy for Snape to fake anger, make himself appear incredibly it's upset. A po- it's possible. I mean, it does say on page 224, after the match, you know, he spat bitterly on the ground. So, yeah, I mean, like, I... he's obviously angry. No, not necessarily, because we're told that when Snape lands, he is white-faced and tight-lipped. Uh-huh. White-faced, that's when blood moves out of your face, which is associated with fear. Yeah. It's almost like Snape well, is in a state of shock, not in a state of rage. I was thinking you could explain that with Harry was darting right at him, you know, uh, and it looked like he was getting ready to hit him, and yeah. then maybe he was shocked yeah, or scared. I, I, I definitely think that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also occurred to me that if Dumbledore is the one behind this uh, course of events... That that did shock Snape, but he's also shocked because this outcome is totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. So he's not angry. I mean, because when we're when we're told Snape spat bitterly on the ground again, the narrator is sort of in Harry's mode of perception, yeah. hmm. where Snape's e- emotional states are being read in probably untrustworthy ways. We're getting the sort of we're getting a, an emotional interpretation of an external detail, and we aren't quite sure if that detail lines up with reality. Um, so for me, the jury's still out on what is actually taking place in these five minutes. Is Snape hoping that he can catch Quirrell in the act? Is Dumbledore protecting Harry? Is Snape the one protecting Harry? Or does it just happen that Harry's really that good at Quidditch and Snape is bitter? And angry and shocked because the match is over so quickly and he can't punish them. Yeah. This is one of those situations where reading the book in hindsight yeah. is actually much more complicated. Yeah. Because when when you read it the first time, you're like, oh, I know exactly what's going on. And even though you're completely wrong, it's much more comfortable to feel like, well, at least I've got a handle on all the details. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, we know that Snape hates Gryffindor, and he hates Harry, so it's really hard for me to to say, oh, he gave Harry an easy win in this game by 
manipulating the snitch in some way because that just doesn't feel in character. It doesn't seem he doesn't need to do that. He's there to protect Harry. Yes, but the fastest way and the most sure way to ensure that he protects Harry is to get him off that pitch. So and he the could quickest have made way really to end the game is for a seeker to catch the snitch. Yes, but if he were to make it so that the Slytherin seeker catches the snitch, well, the it's Hufflepuff. 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 Sorry, if Hufflepuff catches the snitch, maybe because the Hufflepuff. I mean, Harry already has an aura of success around him, right? He has this because he didn't die. Because he didn't die and whatnot, right? Yes. He already has a quality about him that I think many people would leave to believe that he can do great things. So I think there's a there's an acceptance that people would have where Harry catches the snitch in five minutes, where they wouldn't question it, other than it being his skill slash luck, that it's not some outside force making it that way, in a, in a way that it wouldn't work the other way around. I don't know, Hufflepuffs are very good finders. Well, I bet they could find a muffin. <laughs> <laughs> they probably could. So, here, uh, as we're talking, I mean, if we want to press the detail, could it be... That's a good point. <clears throat> ...that Snape is described as tight-lipped, not merely because that is his facial expression, but because he is tight-lipped in the sense that he is not going to tell what he has been up to. And his spitting bitterly on the ground isn't anger at the course of events so much as a, a sort of resignation and bitterness that he had to protect Harry by allowing Harry to have the limelight. See, I can buy that. Like, yeah. it's a bitterness of I had to do this to protect Harry, but he, I'm and the taste of it is is I'm disgusting. I'm still in his not mouth. happy about what I had to do. You know, yeah. I had to to give Harry this win to get him off mm. the pitch. I can um, see that. Yeah, Matt, I have good news. You're no longer dead. To <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm sure I'll find my way back. You will. There soon. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so then we've got. Um, this one more kind of crucial scene um, at the end of the chapter here where um, where Harry uses his broom to uh, eavesdrop on mm -hmm. Snape, follows him to the Forbidden Forest, which I don't know why he doesn't do that more. Yeah. Um, sneak around with his broomstick and, and you know, find... That, that was a detail that I, I forgot. Yeah. Because I, it, I think in the movie... He's on foot, just sort of on the ground, spatially separated with the and cloak concealed. On. Yeah. Here, I mean, he's like cruising the treetop. Right. He's, in a, he's, he's in a tree. He's climbing in a tree. He's in a tree. In a branch with an owl. With an owl. Hooting loudly. A dramatically and he timed owl. falls out of the tree. Yeah, sort of a, <laughs> the opposite of a deus ex machina. It's, yeah. It's not this random event that ends up bringing the plot to resolution. It's a random event that... Keeps the suspense alive. Right. Because if we heard what Snape was saying here, the it game would, would be up. Yeah. yeah. We'd hear it too much. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we don't see more of Harry, like, floating around the school on his broomstick, eavesdropping on people. But I feel like he should do that more. Well, what I get from this scene and what Harry, I think, takes back to Ron and Hermione is that, guys, time is running out. Like, they're, they're seeking. Now they know that the Sorcerer's Stone is what is being guarded and they're thinking they're going for it you know like these teachers that know a lot more magic than we do they're going for it and time is running out and it's giving them now a sense of urgency that we've got to do something 
And it's also interesting, like the first time we we read it and what the trio thinks is that Quirrell's resolve is the only thing that's keeping Snape from getting to the stone. And Quirrell is such a weak character that they're like, well, you know, that's it. Snape's going to have it by tomorrow. Say it'll be gone by next Tuesday. It'll be gone by Tuesday, yeah. That's and, what Ron says. And to tie this back to one of the comments from a listener that we hit before, because Rowling has primed us to think that people's physical characteristics correspond with who they actually are in the story, we think that Quirrell's stutter translates into a legitimate weakness, mm-hmm. uh, timidity, anxiety in his character when in actuality it couldn't be further from the truth right i mean perhaps I mean, he is characterized by fear but it's it's a bold dark uh, destructive fear mm-hmm. uh, one that is in control so to speak of this situation he is the villain but again uh, this storytelling sleight of hand has slipped him in under the radar so that we do not suspect him at all. If there's anyone we don't suspect at this point, it's Quirrell. Yeah. It makes me wish that Harry had stayed for just a little bit longer. Because after Snape leaves, I am almost sure that Quirrell either has some <laughs> kind of conver- conference with Voldemort. Or he goes, you know, further into the Forbidden Forest to, to have him some unicorn blood. You know, like, stick yeah. around for a second and you'll figure it all out. Yeah. yeah. But he just leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Early on, we really are sort of dependent upon coincident, mm-hmm. coincidence and circumstance yeah. to keep the plot concealed enough so that the mystery lives on. Right. Mm-hmm. And yes, listener, the mystery does live on. Uh, next time, we will be in Chapter 14, Norbert. The Norwegian Ridgeback. So read that in advance of the next podcast. We will do our level best uh, to be more faithful about getting together and talking about this wonderful book together. If you have comments on any of the hypotheses, theories, uh, or explanations that we offered here, or even the questions we raised, we invite you to send your comments or questions uh, to us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. Maybe you heard us reference our Twitter account. That's at hpbcpodcast. Follow us on Twitter. We'll tweet out an image of the the uh, Philosopher's Stone that Matt referenced earlier in the podcast. Uh, and I can guarantee you that if you want to be kept up to date on the latest news, uh, ruminations, Uh, and uh, theories associated with the Harry Potter Book Club. Uh, The Twitter feed is a great place to be connected to. Until next time, we wish you the best. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.